Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Okay, uh... After taking a good look at the uh, the film, podcast hell yeah brother overload brother beats by at smoke m2d6 welcome to seattle overload episode 29 and i'm looking happy but we're not that happy because the seahawks after we told them what does it achieve firing offensive coordinator Shane Waldron? What does it achieve firing defensive coordinator Ken Norton Jr.? Although I asked that less seriously because I thought there is no way that the Seahawks are going to get rid of Ken Norton Jr. given how the defense you know, came together again, just like 2020, performed well in total points despite flaws. And yet they did. And they fired defensive passing game coordinator Andre Curtis. And Griffin... It was uh, quite a shock. Uh, gut reaction on this one? Yeah, my gut reaction was um, shock because, like you said, because whether or not you you can fathom an argument for or against firing him, I just didn't think that Pete would, um, especially because I think that if he had – what I think he would identify as the issues with the defense this year, I think first he would think personnel – and and that and the personnel is related more so to health injuries, but then also like doesn't matter who the next defensive coordinator is if you don't add pass rushers, it doesn't doesn't matter. That I think the difference will be minuscule. So if you don't make the personnel changes, so I just didn't think they would. But um, we're going to talk about why we think Pete fired him and what the fire firing signals. Um, in terms of changes, and then also maybe not 
maybe lack of changes or trying to trying to parse the difference between like what were they going to do different next year regardless of who the coordinator was like pete setting the table so to speak because he's still a head coach and I'm, I'm a believer that he lets his coordinators have some you know degree of independence i mean they're still calling the plays and putting the game plan together but we know carol has you know quite quite deal of influence as any head coach should but um yeah i mean he still has a mandate that he's asking his coordinators to fulfill on both sides of the ball so and that mandate can change year to year game to game etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah so what what was your gut reaction when you read the news heard the news, saw uh, the news? it was like uh you know betrayal trying to find the perfect betrayal meme because yeah, yeah how dare you been with ken's known pete since san francisco when he was a player um yeah. that one year and he described i think this season how when pete came in as a defense coordinator to an already established defensive unit everyone was like who the heck is this like young enthusiastic dude and they kind of didn't really trust him but since that you know he he got his first shot coaching linebackers under pete and then was his assistant head coach at usc um, and then he's yeah. been with, you know, so it's quite a shock in that sense. And, and, and I was like, going back to what you, you said and what we said, what does it achieve? Um, you think about what the defense was good at, which was, uh, you know, eliminating explosives, uh, when they, and when they had, that's the other thing, when they had the pass rush, they were able to put pressure on quarterback and suddenly the you know, the timing was less there. And so all the short stuff they, they gave up in the field, all the checkdowns were kind of killed by the pressure. And so their best games are where the pass rush actually came, you know, more consistent, more reliable. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating in that sense as well. Uh, obviously this year was, uh, they were, they're bad at quite a few things too. So, yeah. The, so first, all right, let's, like you said, let's characterize the defense of, of what it was good and bad broadly speaking they starting well really it started in the rams game but then they kind of went away with it in the second half and then we saw some busts in the second half and that's part of it the busts but so starting really week five but then it didn't bear fruit until week six and on they there was like this pretty significant scheme shift one in that they were they started doing more too high but then even within that within the too high stuff they were already doing they intensified like the match techniques and, and stuff. And they were really focusing on like squeezing out the intermediate and capping explosives, which inherently leaves you more vulnerable um, to the check down, like you said. But if in games were in like the few games riddled throughout the season, even when they were doing well overall, they have pass rush, then the second the second level defenders, they don't have to drop as deep and they don't have to drop as deep for as long that allows them to come down and not be run off by the pattern and still be able to tackle the screen or tackle the check down. So that was when those those were the games where they were able to kind of play full circle. So but so well, what is this defense? They didn't give up a lot of explosives in total yards. If we were if we think about how many total snaps they played. They're, they were fifth and fewest volume in terms of explosives. So that's even more impressive when you consider how many snaps they're on the field for, which was a mess of their own making for the most part. But so they they didn't give up a lot of passes over 20 yards. Um, and the completion rates weren't good. And then in the 10 to 20 yard bracket, 
Uh, it's it's different for the char- for each charting company. I think you know each charting company isn't necessarily 100% accurate, but they still paint a picture for target tracking. Um, in the 10 to 20 yard bracket, especially from week six on to 21, where that scheme change occurs, um, they were the second per Sports Info Solutions. They were the second most infrequently targeted defense in that 10 to 20 yard bracket. Now there were stretches like from that week that week six to, to week 10 period, they were like second in fewest yards per attempts as in second best. And, but then after that period, and I think a lot of it's weighed by like the Cardinals game where they just have a total lapse. Then the yards per attempt, like skyrockets back up to like bottom five. And then there's a period where they're like middle of the road again for a couple of weeks. And then it goes all over the place, but the target frequency maintains steady. So I think, and we can attribute that to a lot of different things, but we can say that they're not targeted a lot in the intermediate and then they're not targeted a lot in the, at the third level at the explosive level. So where's the ball going? The ball's going to the underneath and that's reflected by their average depth of target on the season was the second lowest for all, all teams. Now that's not inherently a good thing or a bad thing necessarily because yards are still yards. If you're, if your average depth of target is low and you're also not giving up a lot of yards after the catch, then great. Um, but so yeah, Seattle was seven, their average, the uh, average target was at seven air yards. The, the, the next lowest were the Eagles at like 6.4, but then Seattle's problem was all this yak, all the yards after the catch. And that's what was keeping them on the field. Um, when they had those issues. So. And that relates exactly to what we were just saying. They intensified the techniques to, to choke out the intermediate. The secondary was handling the explosives and they didn't have the pass rush to allow the second level to be more balanced, to defend more balanced. Then also you just need pass rush for sacks sake, right? You just, you want those negative plays. Um, it also forces the running back into the protection more often. If you have a more ferocious pass rush and then that kills screens um, to a degree that kills the running back being able to release, you know, for the check down, you can play seven on four instead of seven on five. So that was Seattle's issue. Now, superficially, their EPA per play on the whole season was not good. But then superficially at the same time, their points per drive was pretty solid, 10th. They were 10th for the whole year, not just even since week six. It was 10th for the whole year. Um, For a while there, they were much better than that. But then again, they had that end of season kind of like roller coaster of points. So that's kind of where they, that's kind of where they were at. And then further, we talk about third downs. People accepted that they were getting off the field on third downs for the most part. They actually ended up settling like 15th or 14th, I think in third down conversion rate, but there was a period um, where they were like fifth or seventh, I think. Um, And again, I think that correlates with injuries at defensive back, but then if, and then you think, okay, well, they're, good on third downs but then early downs like the meat of their defense they're not good well on first down their first down epa per play um is like top 10 throughout the year and then from week six they're like seventh or eighth epa per pass um and then if you play with garbage time filters they're even better so their first down defense was good their third down defense was good a little rocky at times but that was good so they're getting killed on second down And if you think like if the average you know check down gets caught at three yards and then runs for three, four, five more 
that's okay on on most first downs, but on second and four, that's a first down conversion. So they're giving up a bunch of first down conversions on second down. Um, Which, uh, the, real quick, yeah. they were 19th in three and out percentage. And they were 32nd in time of possession, which is obviously, um, you know, somewhat influenced by the offense. But, uh, yeah, you know, to your point about the second down being an issue, like, you know, the third down conversion percentage was four, they were 14th in the league. So kind of middle of the pack. But it was, like you said, the second downs where the issues really arose. And that's, and it led to all these yards. So superficially, why did Pete fire Ken now that we know that he fired him? He's probably just looking at the inconsistencies, the the late start, although this late start this year wasn't as long as it was last year. Um, but he's still seeing that. He's seeing the total yards. Um, he's not seeing pass rush. He's not seeing turnovers, which I know you'll talk a lot about. And he thinks, okay, this isn't good enough. Um, they were also the best in 2020. They were the best like early down play action defending team in the league. And then this year, that totally fell off. And P is probably wanting to know why that happened. And he doesn't want to see that kind of regression. Um, so he's probably looking at the negatives and just thinks they outweigh the positives. And he wants kind of keeping the same scheme with some minor changes, but just wanting better results. Um, before, I, I've, um, I've rambled long enough. Yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, bef before we get to another negative of Curtis and Norton, let's... Uh, Let's talk about the personnel and how, you know, pass rush wise, um, on, on the front of all of this, there's a few schematic things going on. Like, as we've said all, throughout the season, as uh, Cliff Avril said on, in, on the radio the other day, uh, the bare fronts do make the pass rush spacing harder. So, in terms of that tight interior three, um, and then a rusher coming from one side. But is it that much harder than a you know reduced under look or even just base under with the five tech, you know having to get outside the tight end on the rush plan? Yeah, I don't necessarily think so. Maybe they could have done a better job subbing uh, in uh, guys sooner. But like on on clear third downs, they had uh, you know the cheetah pass rush package. But for second down and the early down issues, like maybe they got caught in unfriendly pass rush angle fronts more often now their part their pressure percentage uh according to true media was uh 29th uh, in the league and it uh, according to sports info solutions was 24th so they obviously didn't get enough pressure they didn't get enough sacks they were 22nd in sacks um but pressure being more important and then to me that explains why m mostly their you know turnovers were they were 25th in the league in turnovers they didn't turn the ball over at all in fact it was a a franchise uh low total um of 18 turnovers and total takeaways so they they didn't take the ball away but i think that was mainly because of the pass rush and they just didn't have the personnel for it like their leading pressure percentage guy was dunlap um and as we've said all year like the reason the, the reason this matters is because it forces the ball out like a, a reliable time and the coverage can kind of sync up with that and pressure does lead to turnovers this is the fact and and the like i said just to repeat but like i said the games where the defense was really good the pass rush was kind of there f throughout the game so dunlap was the leading uh pressure according to true media with 11.5 percent which ranked 41st in the league and that's the leading guy 
And Alton Robinson was the leader, uh, according to Sports Info Solutions. This, all of this is amongst guys with at least 100 pass rush snaps. And Robinson's 12.4% pressure percentage, according to SIS, was 43rd in the league. So both both companies agree that the pass rush wasn't very good uh, overall or individually. And you look at the moves they tried to make, well, they brought in um, Kerry Hyder. Uh, I think Olden Smith was actually, I, I wrote in the offseason, funnily enough, how that was kind of a bigger loss than people realized because of what they're planning to do with him, like trying some spinner package stuff. And he, you know, he obviously didn't pan out. Um, Kim Dice didn't do that much. Uh, uh, you know, all of, all of their yeah. pass rush additions didn't really uh, pan out. It was, they were left relying on Dow Taylor, who had an impressive uh, rookie ish season, and then Dunlap. But beyond that, you know, Mayo was just kind of a, a dude. Like, they didn't pressure the quarterback enough. So it's partly scheme, but also mainly, I'd say, personnel. Um, and funny enough, uh, interestingly, their their rush for, uh, so just sending four guys at the quarterback, their rush for pressure percentage was better um, mm-hmm. than their overall. Now, that may be because Seattle drops dropped eight sometimes. I'm not sure, but... Uh, you know, they talk about getting pressure with four and they they were able to get slightly better, but still poor overall compared to the rest of the league. So I don't know. The pass rush was obviously a big issue, right? Yeah, the pass rush was a big issue. Um, if you, huh, it will, for a while there, they're like third and long pressure percentage was more middle of the road. And like it, which is, you know, still, and it stays consistent as in you're comparing it to other teams that are in third and long. Which implies, you know, the scheme thing. Right. It implies the scheme thing. And I think though, back to your point about bear, like what you mentioned about Cliff Averill, I think like if you're, if you're gapped out playing bear, it's a little bit easier to allow guys to get up field a little bit more when they keep pass um, because they know they're gapped out. But like, if you're, and too high, you're having to protect because you're down a gap, right? So you have to protect that that you know the gap that you're down a little bit more than you would. So it makes you play even more run minded, even though like the the front spacing is the same. And as we know, Seattle played more too high this year. Um, but like part of it is that a lot of these teams that do play bear, that do kind of play NFL versions of tight and stuff, is that all the ones that have had good pass rush. I mean, let's look at Vic Vic Fangio with the Niners, you know, from 10 years ago. He had Justin Smith and Alden Smith. He had Ray McDonald. He had Ahmad Brooks. Like, that's going to be a good pass rush regardless of what front you're in. Look at him in Chicago. He had Akeem Hicks and Khalil Mack. Um, In Denver, I don't know if he had a good pass rush, but just on paper, we know that he had Von Miller. So, like... If, if it's all about like how good can your pass rush be, how good can anything be relative to how many resources you commit to it. And Seattle, if they wanted to increase their pressure percentage, they had to play in fronts that accentuated their guys significantly more than they could in their base defense. So like, and Clint Hurt was on that Bears team. He was coaching the outside linebackers in the defensive line on that Bears team. Um, he's a good coach. I mean, it's why he's one of the names for the defensive coordinator position. It's why Miami wants him to play defense, uh, to coach and coordinate the defense at the university of Miami. So like as much as we love Al Woods, as much as we love Puna Ford and Brian and Brian Mona, they're not like, they're not Akeem Hicks as pass rushers. They're not 
Aaron Donald and Brandon Staley's scheme, which is a derivative of the Fangio scheme, right? So that's at some point you just need to you just need a game changer up front. And I think they only have one guy that we identify moving forward that has that potential. That's probably Daryl Taylor. Um, again, like all like Carlos Dunlap, he had a slow start to the season. I think I think him becoming more productive throughout the year is really is really just a correlation of of rushing against tackles that have poor anchors and him realizing he just has to power guys now. He doesn't have the mobility. Mm. So a lot of and, it's and his um, you know, you, you, sorry to interrupt, but they talk about no, no. scheme with him. Uh, you know, they being people have spoke about how the scheme hurt him, but don't forget in you know 2020 it was the same kind of deal, more basic, like le- less uh, variation in the calls. But they brought him in, put him to the field in the bare fronts, and just said rush, and it and it worked. Yeah. This year, his snap count went down. It wasn't the scheme, really, or him having to drop into coverage occasionally that was hurting. It was more that they just weren't playing him because he looked done. Like, we we literally yeah. were saying, like, this guy's look... washed up. Yeah. Like, it's um it's hindsight analysis to be like, oh, yeah, yeah actually, the scheme is what did him in. Like, yeah. I understand seeing a lineman drop into coverage is frustrating, and Cliff Avel said how frustrating that must have been for him. But realistically, they just didn't give him... The, the the rush snaps like there, there was one game where he only played six snaps right yeah like... yeah and i mean maybe he wasn't earning them over, over the other guys that they wanted to see but um further though when you said like bear isn't that much different than like a reduced over under for i mean you're totally right and and we know that to be true like let's just go back to 2012 and 13 when seattle played red bryant in their early down base fronts <laughs> Yeah, the non-quarterback. They're, they're right. They're the only guy that was giving them any pressure was Chris Clements, and then it was Cliff Averill the following year on early downs, or a combination of him and Clements and, and Bennett. But if they wanted to bring out, if they wanted pass rush, if they wanted pressure, they had to wait. So they were in nickel and they trotted out Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett and Chris Clements and a little bit of Bruce Irvin and O'Brien Schofield. But like, yeah, you you just simply so, have to get the so guys that- out there. To that point and what you said about how the early down defense regressed from 2020 to 2021, I mean, it could be that, you know, I was like, I was watching, um, this is this is kind of a and something I shouldn't admit, but I was watching a 2010 Gus Bradley mic'd up clip and he was saying how we got three more runs, like we got two more runs to stop basically and then it will be third down and then we can rush the passer. And that is n- like... Stop the run to rush the pass is not a bad attitude. Especially in 2010. Oh, yeah, in 2010, yeah. But to that point, I do think as the game progressed in 2021, offenses will pass a bit more on early downs, and it's how do you still play defense with that? And you play more, you know, different kinds of coverages behind your your kind of base front. Uh, you you mix in a bit more ex- like different kinds of pressure looks and stuff like which Seattle did. So it's it's not like they didn't do that. And you know the other deal at play here is you were saying about how if you gapped out you can get upfield more in these kinds of fronts, but they weren't necessarily gapped out all the time, or they were, but it was requiring a more heavy technique from play too up high. Front. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reason that was was because, and this brings us nicely to the personnel on the back end. They didn't have a continuity back there. And so with the takeaways thing, I think that was partly because they didn't have the chemistry required to go and make plays within the scheme all the time. I also think, you know, they, they messed up cornerback. Akello Weatherspoon um, 
was not the guy. Uh, it messed up DJ Reed, and then they put him back on the right side. Then Trey Brown comes in, looks great, gets hurt. Sidney Jones takes a while to get up to speed. Then he gets up to speed. DJ Reed missed a few games, as he does, and then comes back in. Jamal Adams gets hurt. Ryan Neal gets hurt. So they're sort of trying to deal with all of that. And because of their cornerback and safety group, they they stumble into these middle field open coverages. And um, v- according to Sports Info Solutions, Seattle ran the fourth most cover two, cover four, and cover six. Uh, so middle field open zone coverage in the league. Um, that excludes uh, red two, screen coverage, combination coverage, and goal line, according to SIS. And True Media kind of agrees with that. They said Seattle ran the fifth most cover two, cover four, cover six. I'm doing that by percentage, by the way. Uh, and that is uh, amongst uh, two-man cover zero, cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four, cover six, bracket, goal line, red zone, prevent, miscellaneous, other, which are those are two uh, mysterious categories at the end. But anyway, so they've, they ran a lot of middle field open zone coverage not just from my eyes but from the number guys and uh that is you know again i think and we're here we're hearing now pete wants an attack-minded defense um which and, ooh, what does that mean and greg bell tweeted out something that we'd heard that um seattle wants to be aggressive oh what does that mean well it's, it's kind of loose buzzwords um and we'll yeah. look in the next episode at the, the candidates but this year, the takeaways, they didn't have them. They didn't have the pass rush. Well, sacking, getting pressure on the quarterback, forcing takeaways, those are aggressive and attack-minded deals. But also their coverage was soft at times, and that, um, you know, that is uh, not very aggressive, is it? It's conservative. And well, so, well, well how, how, do we, how do we define soft coverage, though? Well, I, what, what, now, now we've heard all these things come out. Right. What I'm thinking is, and from what we've heard as well about this new coverage, this Clio thing, which is not new, but it was new for the Seahawks in terms of when All-22 came out because we'd never seen them do this before. But then right. you go back like a degenerate and you see in 2010 against the Chicago Bears, one snap of the playoffs. <laughs> they're uh, they're running this thing from time. Bandit. It's been there the whole time. But anyway. Um, well, like we also know Man Match Quarters is in there too, but we've just never seen right. it actually on tape so like we know pete right. has all this stuff locked in a so vault you, somewhere but you go back they at, at some point this season they decided to change and go hey we're going to run this and we're going to run it more often and so i always thought that's a ken norton jr thing as we said it's it's kind of a derivative of um of what they do at baltimore ravens um uh the cincinnati bengals marvin lewis that kind of yeah. deal however which uh, which is a predecessor to what Fangio, right? Like that's right. it's like it's like they're they're they have yeah. a common ancestor. The the cover A or what uh, pack stuff, but so uh, you know you you think oh it's it's in Norton's repertoire, but perhaps actually it was Pete who uh, initiated this change or suggested the change. Um, we'll never know, but just the fact that you know he's gone and fired Curtis and Ken Norton. Yeah. It kind of, it, it it could imply that, and on a on a similar subject, I guess it raises the the personnel issue of um, Bobby Wagner because obviously he yeah. athletically declined, and that impacted the defense a lot. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that we can, as far as like the cover three regression, we noticed early on that their boot their boot rules or the way they play their cover three rules against play action boots, like the quarterback rolling out from under center. They were not nearly as like 
nearly as well prepared for it. Um, and then Wagner just simply is getting outran. Like, like even if he's identifying, like a couple of them he identifies early, and he's just getting outran to the sideline by the crossing routes. Like, uh-oh, that's not good. And then the way that they handle certain things, like who, like who leverages the cross or who robots the cross, and then who nails down or not nails down, but overlaps on like that delay flat route, like that second flat route, because the near side curl flat defender is already being ran off by the slide route, you know, like who, like they're not as quick to that stuff. It's like, how do they go from what they did in 2020 to this in 2021? Now, granted, they did improve on that week six. Like, like not only did their rules improve, but then they're also like blitzing under center formations more or contained blitzing and they were succeeding and it was looking great. And then all of a sudden against the 49ers, there's a lapse again. And then, then they do well. And then there's a minor lapse against, I think, um, I think there was one or two against the cards, but then there's like a random play where it's just like terrible against the lions. And it's like, what's, what's going on here. So maybe it's like they, they plug one hole and then another one squirts out. And then I don't know like how, like internally, I'm sure Pete knows the answer. I'm sure Pete knows exactly why it's happening, but we can, we can only parse from the outside. Well, I mean, yeah. the the firing of defensive pass game coordinator Andre Curtis kind of suggests that Pete felt the coaching emphasis wasn't, you know, was kind of off. And yeah. like they try clearly at the start of the year, um, 2020 and 2021, they tried to install, I think, all of the defense at the start and then kind of unfurl it as the season progressed. That seemed to be the way they went. And that's not a bad way of doing things necessarily. Like that's how Nick Saban does yeah. it, for instance. A lot of coaches do it like that does require a lot of practice time uh, and with the missing OTAs in back-to-back seasons with them not playing preseason uh, first time round because of COVID second time round because of uh, choosing not to play their dudes. Um, it meant that they, they were lacking like a chemistry on field. So, you know, this consecutive slow starts has got to be yeah. an issue at play, but then this kind of plugging a hole and then an, another one appearing Maybe, you know, just the coaching emphasis, they're overcompensating. But, like, you know, I've wrote so many articles where it's like, why are they busting this coverage? And you, you get annoyed at the players. Uh, you, you get frustrated about it. But ultimately, the coaches are the ones who are there emphasizing it. And Pete Carroll said how they go through, you know, after the Vikings game. So we go through this, like, we know this. And they do know it because it's happened. Daggers yeah. always beat this. You just need the strong hook to stay disciplined. And again, that goes back to Wagner being slow and having to overplay stuff and then probably not expecting him to be that athletically declined for that long a period, a.k.a. the whole season. But also what this leads into is the the fact that there's all this plugging of holes and the, and, 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 and all of this uh, this coaching emphasis and, and whatnot, it, um, it leads nicely into, as I have in my notes... Um, Segway, I'm trying to land the ship. We love um, segways around here. <laughs> um, what was I? What was we? What were we talking about? We, 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 <laughs> uh, we were talking about Russell Wilson not going over the middle. Just kidding. Uh, we were talking about um, like Dagger, the Minnesota game, c- coaching. Like, do we attribute that to coaching? Pete's talking about how they're. Oh. They practice this stuff. They know it's coming, and then they're it still not defending into, okay, it. Okay, so it leads into perhaps the message has grown stale from the coaches, and that's why new guys are coming in because 
you know, Ken Norton Jr., he had a brief uh, two-year, three-year spell with the Oakland Raiders. Um, but, you know, he, he's been there at the Seahawks 2010 uh, to 2014 as the linebackers coach. Then he comes back 2018 to 2021 as the linebackers coach. That's all Jordan Brooks has experienced. That's most of what Bobby Wagner has experienced. Bobby Wagner probably won't be here next year. More than that, Andre Curtis, when Jamal, Jamal Adams, uh, and he's a he's a player that you, we, you want to talk about them potentially trying to reach more. But um, Jamal Adams this season, he uh, uh, he played well. Uh, but, you know, occasionally there's, there's the moment where he doesn't seem to be... Uh, Perhaps on like as fully honed as he could be, um, uh, for, and 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 it's more like I think back to and I wrote an article uh, after his after his rookie season. I was um, procrastinating as a completely normal person would by watching um, Dave Aranda clinic uh, from LSU, his time at LSU, and Dave Aranda's saying how he he gets to LSU and he realizes the ball that they've been playing ain't the ball that he's been playing. He's a dude, he's been in Wisconsin, he's been coaching uh, kind of farmer-type <laughs> recruits mainly. He comes to LSU, there's Jamal Adams, who's this like superstar, and Dave Randa describes how it's like he's in a reality TV show because it just looks like he belongs in the NFL. It's like that's all he's ever met, been like, you know, wanting to do. He's just It's just so obvious that he's going to be a first-round pick by the way he carries himself. You know, he, he runs his 40-yard dash and he goes up in front of the media like he was just meant for that moment. Yet, you get him in the meeting room and he's sat at the back of the meetings. He's nodding his head. He's acting like he belongs because that's what he feels he has to do. He has to carry himself in that way. And then you go out on the field and he makes a mistake because he, he hasn't really been taking it in. And and Dave Randa spoke about how he had to, that challenged him as a coach because it's, it's how you communicate with people like that. You know, how, like, how do you reach that kind of superstar player? Um, it's such a different challenge to Wisconsin. Go ahead, sorry. I, well, I remember you also mentioned during that period that one-on-one, -on -one, he's like, Aranda said he's a great student one-on-one, -on -one, but then yes, in a room full yes. of people, he's like a aware. A group setting, are, thank you. That's a, in a, in yeah. a group setting, people are watching him and he's taking more. Now, granted, I he was also <laughs> like, he was like 19, 20 years old then too. Of so course, he's, and, and he's he's obviously a, and he's learned so much, and he's yeah. obviously a super super player. But to your to your point though, like there, so so here, I'll 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 start with I'll start on the Jamal thing with this. So like Pete mentioned, he mentioned Daryl Taylor twice, and it was more so related, I think, to like injury. But he he told Taylor's like everything that's happened, all of our like eval on you, like in practice and games or whatever whatever they had seen on him, they're going to throw out. As in, like, it's a fresh start. We're going to throw it in the trash, and it's like a restart. And then Pete said he observed – he said this at the end of the year presser, or I think also in seven, on 710 ESPN Radio. And then he said he observed, like, a, a new mindset from Taylor, and that kind of unlocked him a little bit. And he had a good year, and and, and we were going to see more of it um, next year, I'm pretty sure. But so he, he – was aware that Taylor needed like a restart in mindset to kind of get going. Not that there was like a before and after of play on the field, like in live games to compare, but clearly, clearly, you know, a lot goes on in practice. Pete knows like what translates from practice to games, et cetera. So then with Jamal, I mean, we're both on record as saying that no Adams is actually a much better player than public perception, but I'm not going to say that he didn't have busts this year. I'm not going to say that there wasn't disappointment, like in pure man, like, 
people say, oh, you know, the usage is bad or whatever. Regardless of what you think of his usage, he was better at certain things, one-on-one situations in New York than he was here. Why has that happened? That doesn't mean there's been an absence of good one-on-one play. There has been. There indeed has been. Um, he's even locked up some some you know high enough profile tight ends, and then nobody really acknowledges it to the extent. And that's okay because what makes an elite coverage player elite is absence of negative plays. It's not just well they had a good game here, they had a good game there. You know what I mean? But um, so with Adams though, it's like the things he did do this year. Well, they played a lot more quarters this year or half quarter quarter. But he's playing quarters, and I don't think you can take that away from him. He's good in quarters. Um, he didn't give up any passes in quarters. Um, I think he's a good cover two safety. He had the one fiasco with Deshaun Jackson in a weird situation, and ultimately it's on him and the Rams, but like that's the only play I identify. He made some great plays, even plays on the ball in both cover two. Um, and then in quarters, like they didn't even throw at him this year. Um, and then I think like in say cover one, he's an excellent robber akin to Tyron Matthew. And they used him to great effect when they started playing more cover one on third downs in the middle of the season. Um, and then I think that he was mixed uh, one in one-on-one situations like that, that play, the touchdown he gave up to Tyler Higby in the Rams game. That was a huge uh-oh moment for me. It was a moment for everybody, but like I'm thinking his confidence is shot. Yeah. That's it, what we said at the time that it was, it was, uh, indicative of a lack of confidence in his technique because right. he just took like an, he didn't break when he didn't trust his break basically he, he didn't trust himself at all like he's giving way too much room and then and then also i think in cover three he's a good hook defender and i think he can carry seams well enough and he was there's lots of examples of him doing that and achieving what the scheme requires him to do um so i think but i think pete um pete still looks at this and goes we traded two first round picks for this guy. We just gave him a, we just signed him to a huge contract. I want more out of him. And I think it's because he believes that he can get more out. So maybe he goes the, the hands-on one-on-one coaching. He needs either. It needs to be better or Jamal needs a change of scenery for himself. And we're not going to trade him. So the change of scenery needs to happen in Seattle. And therefore, Combined with all the other things we've talked about, Pete Register is okay. We need a new defensive pass game coordinator. We need a new defensive back coach. And it's weird to say that because at the same time with DJ Reed's emergence and then Sidney Jones after like coming to Seattle and like overnight and then after a couple of games starting to look really good, all the other injuries that occurred. Um, I mean, you could argue that this season is a credit to Andre Curtis you know, as a coach, but then at the same time, the Vikings game in particular, Jamal Adams regression and and one-on-one situations, or at least consistency issues. And then, you know, like what's going on with their cover three, why are they lapsing? Even if they're not practicing as much, they shouldn't be this bad at it. Like Pete's like, all right, we need, we need a change here. So that's, that's, that's how I, the best I can identify why Pete would want, um, a, ch- a coaching change, but I don't think it signals on, to. Yeah, go ahead. On the, uh, it's it's funny because DJ Reed was asked at the end of the season yeah. about by Corbin about um, Seattle's usage of middle field open coverages and how that helped eliminate explosives. And Reed uh, Reed's answer, which I tweeted out, was worth checking out. He kind of ignores the question and sort of chooses to talk about playing them playing more man coverage and then playing more um you know press 
and it's like oh well that that's not what he meant and then you sort of frame it in this aggressive attack-minded thing and it's like oh well maybe <laughs> maybe that's what they wanted all along and i guess in their half quarter quarter the cleo stuff the backside quarter corner basically did play it like man and then against arizona um, it, it is funny because that was kind of what the defense was i think in pete's mind going to look like in the sense that they sent quite a bit of pressure they played a bit of man even on like second down yeah. um and they were kind of aggressive and went after it. and again it comes back to personnel because you know there's plays where ugo is like straight up beat and just you know gets away of it with a defensive pass uh, an offensive pass interference penalty which is very ticky tacky they usually let people want to push off and uh you know they get away with the man they they pressure to keep the back in um they they do they do they sort of blend it in nicely and it's like well after dj reed said that is that was that more of a pete's image game plan and can you do that with the personnel if you if you get more of a pass rush then maybe you can but for curtis it is unfortunate because where do you go from here like as a coach, like you've you've coached in a peak, like do you try and become a DB coach for a different Pete Carroll tree? I always found his uh, career interesting because he was never a um, he was never a defensive back himself, which is, I mean, that's it, not completely abnormal, but it's it's slightly more unusual. Like he uh, yeah. he, he was always a uh, I think uh, where did he play? He played linebacker in in his career, but anyway. Did he play linebacker? That's cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean it. It 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 sucks. I, I think for him, he's thinking. He's thinking, man. Look, look what I had to deal with with my cornerback cornerback room this year. Okay, well, there's been like the upheaval through that, and then cutting Trey Flowers. And it was really then, the corners giving up the catches. No, it and was like all, all yeah, and then like all the new guys coming, and he's probably thinking, I coached the crap out of these guys. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but again, you know, we mentioned he's you know he's not just coaching the corners; he's coaching. The safeties and then also he does have the title passing game coordinator and there were some coverage busts and how much is that on him because we can imagine that he's out there like coaching the whole defense essentially if you're the passing game coordinator well yeah and like if, for instance, you, pod, you have quite a bit of responsibility and i know well, for Ken, instance like pod work so you get the this where like you get the linebackers you get the back seven together, basically. You get the linebackers and DBs out there, and you go through your coverage shells versus different formations. Like, yeah, makes sense if the passing game coordinator is the one scheming that up. While right. maybe Ken Norton Jr. is doing a run scaly with the the linebackers and and the D line, um, and so it's like the front six. Right. I mean, like, and we know Norton's still coaching front the seven. whole defense too, but like, we just we also know that Curtis has a, quite a bit of like influence there, so. I don't know. Part of it is that maybe in Pete's mind, if I'm firing one, I might as well fire the other type of thing. I don't, so I don't, what I'd I like to know. ask yeah. is, did um, as we wrap this kind of up, did uh, Pete Carroll in the meeting with Jody Allen and the mysterious Vulcan group and John Schneider, was there sort of a, well, you got to change something because we went seven and 10. Um <laughs> Was there pressure from the owner, or is this just a, a purely a Pete decision? We'll never know, but I'm just curious how yeah. likely you think that is. I don't know. It's uh, it's possible, but like, 
well, we don't know how absentee Vulcan or Alan and the whole Vulcan and Alan estate is like, do they really care? Or are they just looking at revenue? You know, mm. um, I imagine Seattle still may, the Seahawks still generate a lot of money this year. Um, well, they did have some empty seats, but I don't know if the tickets okay. have been, yeah, there's quite a few games with visible empty seats, but anyway, yeah. I don't think people would turn up yeah. to defense anyway. Um, um, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. So I don't, it's, the other, it's, yeah, go ahead. The other unknown here is the defense was like noticeably kind of fixed. Um, so to varying degrees, probably a, a greater extent in 2020 than it was in 2021. Like 2020, the fixing felt a bit more sustainable because Dunlap was a bit more reliable throughout the season, I guess. And Adams was a sack monster. Whereas, you know, this year, mainly because of how offenses were playing them, he wasn't able to be brought as much. But they kind of just straight up abandoned him on um, clear passing downs as a, as a blitzer, which I think Pete would have got a bit annoyed about. Uh, anyway... But, you know, was the fixing, and we will never know this, as I just said, but was the fixing more Pete than it was Ken Norton? Was Pete fed up of having to go over to a guy who he's been coaching with, you know, as I said, since 2004 or whatever, and known yeah. as a player for ages? Was he fed up of just having to go, like, babysit the defense and really, like, get stuck into it? That Because that could have been what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's it's possible. I, I think, yeah. like, who, who do we... Who, who do we attribute them, him, them, you know, transition to Cleo, like the half quarter quarter and the way that they played it? I mean, I think it's hard to know because, like you said, we know that P has had this in his playbook the whole time. But then we also know that just recently Ken Norton Jr. called the same coverage in Oakland just, you know, a couple of years prior. So maybe, I mean, maybe they both arrived on the same conclusion. Whoever, whoever's first idea it was, I'm sure the other was all in on it. You yeah. know, I don't think they had an issue with this. So I don't know how much ultimately that matters. I think that, I, I don't know. I think in hindsight, they would have played, even with the injuries, tried to force, force feed cover one, um, like dip into that third down package they had that was working for them um, starting the Steelers game and on lead that into the second down second down more um they just yeah, try to that's, force that's true i'd forgot about that the playing ryan neal as the uh the dime back with the kind of even front uh like up front where they have the double a gaps and um a strong safety mug in the edge that that did or neal, adam's actually. playing robber yeah adam's I mean... playing robber yeah that worked that worked nicely like but again, they they kind of improved midway through the season how they played third downs, and it's like why can you not start the season with that? Like yeah. bang on it, it's uh, and so it, it's asking a lot to keep finding out. You don't to keep finding out what your defense is halfway through is is quite tough. Like yeah. you should probably have a better idea sooner. As difficult that is, that is with the injuries and people not playing in the preseason and uh, not having OTAs. Yeah, um, the, the whole attack-minded thing. I mean, like it's it's it, a lot of it goes back to the semantics of what is soft and what is aggressive. I don't think that they're going to be blitzing more next year. And I know that for a lot of people, that's what it, aggressive means. But a lot of the defensive coordinators they're looking at decide. Donatello, we'll talk about that in more in the next episode. Just Chicago, for example, Seattle was rushing five or more at a rate of like 22.2%. And then Desai 
with Chicago is doing at 22.8%. So there's no difference. Um, aggressive impedes my might just mean more man coverage. And but then I think I it ask, means uh, I think it means more press alignment as well. And and they yeah, did more, more press, but more man. They did show a bit more press as the season went on, uh, especially the first five weeks. Like there wasn't even press bail going on; they were just off and playing. Yeah, five. that was like, weird. So I guess, but like the, the zone coverage that they do play for my money is aggressive zone. It's yeah, but, matched, it's match zone. Well, that's why that who introduced Cleo thing is a very interesting discussion because that was like the hyper aggressive, like, whoa, they're, they're like matching, matching middle field over right. like playing aggressive. Like, That's why it's important to me. So you like, okay. And, and, and we're wrapping up here, but like w one more thing, the reason why the running backs are going crazy, the reason why the checkdowns are going crazy running into the second level, scot free is because they're playing aggressive at the second level. And because, like, again, the no pass rush forced them to play a more aggressive at the sec second level for longer. If they mm. didn't have to do it as long, they'd be better leverage, better space for the check down. That's an identical coverage that Brandon Staley, that a lot of guys run. But it's just, would anybody characterize Brandon Staley's core base coverage as soft? Right? No. Nobody would say. It's just the performance they're in. And Staley had worse linebackers than Seattle does, even with even with Wagner's regression. Um, granted, he had a great nickel, though, which is part of the underneath coverage. But he's also got Aaron Donald, who you can generate a four-man rush with, four-man rush with, with just Aaron Donald and average pass rushers around him. Like, because he's he's a game changer. He's a he's a game, he's a and, he changes the math single-handedly, like Earl Thomas changed the math and the coverage. Ha having that four-man rush. You know, you spoke about how the back is the beater. Well, having a dot, that kind of four-man rush, you're more likely to keep the back in. Yeah. And there we go. Like, and it's not like and, Seattle was having a linebacker always on the back. Like, they played this out of dime and had Ryan Neal match up with Alvin Kamara, and he still got roasted in that coverage. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, yeah. I think one of the biggest parts when you talked about the regression and cover three is like Bobby Wagner went from 2020 as one of their very best players to literally one of their very worst player. I mean, he might've been the weak link in the entire back seven this year. So that's a huge, that's a huge night and day shift. Um, yep. Yeah. But we'll, we'll talk more about the defensive coordinator can candidates, what that could mean, how they improve for next year. We will in, uh, in overload episode 30, yeah. but thank you for watching this and listening uh, please like, share, retweet, and uh, yeah, we we appreciate you. We're looking forward to the off season. Hopefully, we uh, we get a new contract, and uh, we'll we'll keep going wherever. So yeah.